Roger McNamee was one of the early big investors in Facebook, a Silicon Valley venture capitalist who became a trusted advisor to founder Mark Zuckerberg. But in October 2016, he was disillusioned and even more alarmed. McNamee had come across signs that Facebook, America's largest social media platform with 1.7 billion users, was being manipulated by malicious actors for political purposes who were spreading phony news stories filled with conspiracy theories that inflamed voters. Even worse, McNamee saw indications that Facebook tools were being abused by outside parties collecting data and spying on targeted groups, and that its facial recognition software was being used to identify people who had never given permission. McNamee laid all this out in a searing paper he sent to Zuckerberg and Chief Operating Officer Cheryl Sandberg. After more than a decade of involvement with the company, McNamee wrote, Now I am disappointed. I am embarrassed. I am ashamed. Facebook has done some things that are truly horrible, and I can no longer excuse its behavior. Zuckerberg and Sandberg politely but firmly brushed McNamee off and referred him to a top executive who insisted his concerns were overblown. But the day after the 2016 election, McNamee hit the roof and lashed out at that executive over what he was convinced had happened. The Russians used Facebook to tip the election, he shouted. McNamee lays out his story in his new book, Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. We'll talk to him, as well as a Yale Law School professor who's trying to educate the country about the 25th Amendment on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. You know, this uh, Zuckerberg Facebook stuff is wild, and I'm uh, really uh, looking forward to talking to Roger McNamee. But before we get to that, let's just take stock of what's happened this week. Trump gives his State of the Union. He says a lot of stuff, but the lines that I think leapt out to both of us is his reference to ridiculous partisan investigations. And then he kind of warns the Congress, if there's going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. And then the very next day, the very next morning, there's Adam Schiff, the new uh, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, announcing this wide open, sprawling investigation of everything to do with Trump, Russia, his business, money laundering, you name it. It's like a five part investigation, the scope and scale of the Russian government's operations to influence the U.S. political process, whether any foreign actor, any foreign actor. Not just Russians has sought to compromise or hold leverage financial or otherwise over Donald Trump, his family, his business, his associates, and on it goes. It was a basically completely in your face to the president. Yeah. So first of all, 
Trump was channeling Richard Nixon from his uh, 1974 State of the Union, who said these investigations have to stop. One year of Watergate is enough. I will point out that I think Nixon had to leave office 190 days after that. Right. <laughs> you know, maybe Adam Schiff was channeling Sam Irvin. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. the thing that is so striking is that uh, this was supposed to be a speech about reconciliation, about unity, uh, you know, and Trump, I think, did make some gestures in that direction. But we're talking about two more years of scorched earth. Yeah, yeah. This investigation that Schiff has just announced, which, by the way, he does say is going to be done in conjunction with other committees. So you'll have foreign affairs. You'll have ways and means trying to get his tax returns, obviously, uh, Nadler and judiciary. But this is basically saying Trump will be the target of House investigations for the rest of his presidency, regardless of what Mueller comes up with or doesn't come up with, regardless of what his report is, you know, absolutely ahead. Yeah. And on every possible front. And, you know, we should also point out that at the same time, basically, they released or sent over transcripts of testimony before the House Intelligence Committee to Mueller for possible for perjury investigations or possible perjury charges. Right. So that is an, an aggressive act right. on the part of uh, Almost inviting Mueller to stay in business longer and review these transcripts. That's you right. may be wrapping up, as some have reported, but, uh, you know, don't uh, close the door yet. You know, you go through the five different line of inquiries, and it is every single front. Trump will be investigation by these democratically controlled committees. including money laundering, including whether Trump was compromised by foreign governments, not just Russia, but it's clear while he doesn't name other governments, he doesn't specifically name Saudi Arabia. We know, frankly, from our own interview with Congressman Swalwell, who's on that committee, that Saudi Arabia is a real focus of Swalwell kind of broke this story uh, on skullduggery a few weeks ago when he told us there'd be a money laundering investigation of Trump. By the way, uh, item four on Schiff's agenda, I should read because it is pretty open-ended, whether President Trump is family or his associates are or were at any time at heightened risk of or vulnerable to foreign exploitation, inducement, manipulation, pressure, or coercion, or have sought to influence U.S. government policy in service of foreign interests. Look, this is fine because there's still plenty of questions that um, we all have about Trump and his business and the connections to Russia that may or may not be resolved by the Mueller report. But You know where I'm coming from. I want to see them do this in public with transparency so that we see live testimony because Schiff was going to have Michael Cohen behind closed doors. To me, that was outrageous on its face. Now he's put that off till the end of the month. We'll see what comes of that. But if this investigation is going to have any credibility. It's got to be open and transparent with public hearings. Otherwise, it'll look completely partisan. As we've talked about before, there can be legitimate times when witness has to go behind closed doors if there's uh, sensitive intelligence information that's being discussed or if it could interfere with a criminal investigation, in this case, the Mueller probe. Those reasons do not apply this time. And so it does make you wonder whether... The reason that these interviews have been done behind closed doors is because they just want to shape 
public perceptions and they want to make sure that right. anything that would undermine their theory of the case would not be exposed. And that could be really damaging to uh, the uh, right. democratic right. cause here because it makes it look like it's political. Right. Yeah. It's a bit of a high wire act. But look, a lot of people are hoping this produces evidence that could be used for impeachment. But there is another route for those who want to get rid of our president. It's the 25th Amendment. And we've got a great guest here to talk about that first, Harold Coe, who's written a guide to the 25th Amendment. Let's do it. We are joined now by our old friend Harold Coe, <laughs> uh, professor of international law at Yale, former dean and former legal advisor to the State Department. Welcome to Skullduggery. Oh, it's great to be here. I, I love the decor. <laughs> um, the Halloween candy is really something. <laughs> right. Cool. All right. So you have done a sort of a guide to the 25th Amendment, which is something that a lot of people will be interested in reading at this point. Why'd you do it now? Well, there are two ways you can remove a president except by election. One is by impeachment, which people know about and they've witnessed pretty recently. And then the other is by the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, Section 4. And, you know, I, I watch TV. I enjoy TV. And uh, over the course of a number of months, I watched the West Wing, Madam Secretary, 24 <laughs> designated survivor. And every single one of them had an episode about the 25th Amendment. And every single one of them made a legal mistake. And I thought, this is pretty scary. So I consulted some people about it and some friends who know a lot about it. And uh, this is one of those amendments where you can actually read everything there is to read. And I had my students go through every hearing, everything there was on it, every article. And the people who helped draft it are still alive, principally Birch Bayh. Senator and John Furyk, who's former dean at Fordham Law School. And what you'll notice, and this gets into the substance a little bit, if it's activated, everybody in the country will be riveted on a procedure which will either mean that the president is removed from office or not within 25 days, which is an unbelievably short time span. And when that happens, uh, you're going to have Alan Dershowitz and, uh, you know, uh, Jonathan Turley and um, Rudy Giuliani all on opining about what the words mean, having just picked it up and looked at it. Yeah. And we thought, you know, why don't we write a guide, a reader's guide? Okay, so the common understanding is that the 25th Amendment was put in place as a way to remove a president who is deemed unfit. And unfit. a majority of the cabinet can declare him unfit with the concurrence of the vice president or a body created by Congress again, with the concurrence of the vice president. What is wrong about the common understanding of what the 25th Amendment is and what the grounds for invoking it are? Uh, so it's not a majority of the cabinet. It's a majority of the principal officers of the executive departments. There are 15 of them. And that means that it takes eight of them, and they're listed by statute. So the vice president plus eight can remove. In one of the TV shows I watch, I can't remember, some of these cabinet offices are headed by acting secretaries. <laughs> and, and the Madam Do they Se count? Madam Secretary, they said, uh, here's the acting secretary of such and such. You can't vote. They're wrong. You can't vote, you know. So, so Matt Whitaker <laughs> could 
could vote to he remove could, he the could, president. <laughs> right. He could yeah. vote. He could vote to remove yeah. the president. Yeah. Who's the acting defense secretary? It's right uh, now? Patrick he, Shanahan. Uh, he could yeah, vote too. He could vote right, too. Right. Uh, in fact, Trump has I don't know something like six actings right now in the cabinet. But tell us a little bit of the history of this amendment when it was first passed. And it has been invoked, not Section 4, but the amendment has been invoked over the years. It's always had to do with medical necessity, right? Yeah, that's right. For um, temporary for removal. For temporary removal. And first of all, why did Congress see it necessary to pass this amendment back in the 60s? So it was shortly after the assassination of John Kennedy. And um, we all witnessed that, those of us of a certain age. And when you now read Robert Caro's book, you realize what a fraught moment it was. You know, Lyndon Johnson on the plane, you know, Jackie Kennedy is there, her, her uh, clothes covered with blood, taking the oath on the plane, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so they decided that they wanted to do this through a carefully thought through constitutional process. And Birch Bayh took the lead. On the House side, there was a guy who's somewhat obscured these days, but Richard Poff, who was a House of Representatives from Virginia. And they debated a lot of the issues. There was a tremendous floor debate. And the basic thought was it ought to be allow you to involuntarily transfer the president's power to someone else. Now, the closest that we've ever gotten it to being invoked was in 1987, when Ronald Reagan was toward the end of his time in office. This is reported by Jane Mayer and Doyle McManus in their book. You know, Howard B Baker becomes chief of staff, and he had a guy working for him named Cannon. And uh, apparently everyone was telling him, you know, Reagan, is something's wrong with him. We now know that he had Alzheimer's and was descending into Alzheimer's. And in fact, Cannon sent a memo to Howard Baker that says, consider invoking 25th Amendment. And so they brought in a bunch of people to observe Reagan. And on that particular day, he was really on his game. And afterwards, I guess they came out and told Howard Baker, I don't think we've got a case. And so they just dropped it. After all, he was, you know, he was one year away from leaving office anyway. But, you know, that was a period where many believed that, you know, Mike Deaver or Nancy Reagan were performing many of the powers and duties of the president. So what is the standard for invoking Section 4, full removal of a president? Unable to discharge the powers and duties of the office. Unable. It's not unfit. It's not medically unable. So obviously it encompasses permanent medical disability. So, for example, if uh, someone has lost their mind, that would qualify. What if they came into office having <laughs> lost their mind? Uh, well, that's a good point because the more that we worked on it, the more we became aware of the kind of pop news, law news that was being generated. One guy wrote an article where he says, if everybody votes for someone who they think is unfit, then he's immunized from being removed under the 25th Amendment. You know, that can't be the case. Now, examples that were given... The common use for someone voluntarily transferring is, you know, they have a colonoscopy, so they... Well, and this go. has happened. Oh, right? that's I happened. Mean, this yeah, happened yeah, with George uh, W. Bush. George W. Bush. Yeah. Someone has a heart attack, is in the hospital, you know. Eisenhower had three heart attacks. But then there are the scenarios where someone is compromised in the West Wing. One of the more interesting episodes, Martin Sheen's daughter is kidnapped. So he's in a conflict situation. And some of the examples that they give is someone's in an oxygen tent... Someone is kidnapped, someone is 
in an undisclosed location and can't see what's going on and is unable to make a rational judgment. Poff, the representative from Virginia, said it's inability to make a rational decision with the facts at hand. All right. Well, let's get down to brass tacks. Are there grounds to invoke the 25th Amendment against Donald Trump? Well, so first of all, there is a person who makes this evaluation, and the question is, what do they see? Who Who is that well, person? In, in, the, in the anonymous op-ed, the, right? The vice president. Well, first of all, mm-hmm. you have to recall that people are very close to Trump, closer than us. Like Rod Rosenstein is reported to have said, I want to wear a wire because I've heard him say things that might trigger the well, he's, the he's I think he said that was not a serious assertion yes. on his part. There were people on his people behalf on his have, behalf said, have said, that, said that. But, but there was also the anonymous op-ed piece in the New York Times yes, in which also that individual it. reported that there have been discussions inside yeah. the White House about invoking the 25th Amendment. But we're asking you. You know, I think from what I've seen. I mean, well, let's from just what take you've it. Seen what? what I see on television reported and by respectable journalists who I believe. I mean, after all, well, well, finish, finish the sentence, sentence yeah. based on what you've seen. Well, how many times have you heard the phrase Mattis or Kelly was the adult in the room? Right. If the implication is the person who's making the decisions is not the adult in the room capable of making decisions, we're suddenly in 25th Amendment territory. Now, you know, everybody, every normal person has moments of discouragement or depression or moments of irrational rage. You know, that doesn't render you unable. But if it turns out there's sort of some combination of characteristics that make you unable to make a rational decision, it could be invoked. I'm still a little unclear. Are you saying that based on what you have seen, you believe there are grounds to invoke the 25th Amendment against President Trump? Yeah, I lead that to the people who would make that decision, who I I think would be Pence and the members of the cabinet. Based on what you've seen, you certainly – it sounds like you have questions about whether this would be an appropriate – He's closer to the line than any president we've had uh, in my lifetime. Um, And so therefore what? If that is the case, how does one trigger – an invocation of the 25th Amendment? How does it begin? Do there have to be hearings in Congress? Does I mean, how does it start? Well, that, that's when the scenario becomes so interesting and compressed timetable. So the vice president plus eight, we'll leave aside for a second whether there's a creation of this other body. The vice president plus eight send a letter to the Speaker of the House and President Pro Tem of the Senate. At that moment, the president is removed from the exercise of his duties. It could happen this afternoon. Now, the president could then contest his inability, saying, in fact, I'm able to do it. And then within four days of contesting, you know, suppose it was a situation where the president was unconscious or something, he recovers consciousness. Normally, you would expect the vice president to simply let him resume his duties. But if the president contests, it then... They send a second declaration of inability, presumably the same people, to the House and the Senate. And then they have 21 days to vote the question of whether he's unable or not. And you have proceedings in both houses. And you need Does it have to be a supermajority? Two-thirds vote in both houses. It's not a two-thirds of everyone assembled. But by the way, everything I'm saying are things that have been misreported in various places. That You know, if you have 535 and you have 200, two-thirds of that – that's enough. That's well, not so. Well, of course, and you can understand why the, that's a pretty high threshold. You can understand why the threshold is so high because 
the possibility of use of the 25th Amendment being politicized is a pretty dangerous thing, right? I mean, you know, you're, you're and, and subverting the will of the people. Right. Um, and if it's done to, to a president from one party, the way things work in Washington these days, it's like that happened to a president from the other party. And Isn't this playing and with let's fire? let's point out that Harold was the legal counselor to Hillary Clinton at the State Department while she was Secretary of State. So people are going to listen to you and say, well, you're a Clinton guy and you're doing this as some form of political payback by even raising the issue. Well, then fine. I mean, they should read our 85 pages and read all of <laughs> No, really. You know, I mean, you know. Yeah. People have views. and But what would you say to somebody who says you're coming at this from a political angle? I'd say, how much time have you spent reading the 25th Amendment? Okay. And the answer would be bupkis. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'd say, read our document and suggest where it's biased. And by the way, we showed this to every leading presidential historian and every expert on the 25th Amendment. If there was stuff that we thought they didn't think was plausible, we removed it. We thought we wanted to answer the clear choices you know, for example, it, 20, it says 21 days. Is that 21 calendar days or 21 legislative days, right? Well, it turns out it's 21 calendar days. But here's, here's an example. Suppose, you know, I'm a Korean-American, so this is obviously of concern to me. Suppose before the most recent love fest between the president and Kim Jong-un, something happens and the president suddenly says, I want to nuke North Korea. And suppose it's in the wake of some other event that makes people think he's about to get into more legal trouble. For example, you could argue that one factor that affected the end of the shutdown is the indictment of Roger Stone. I think I heard Mike Isikoff <laughs> saying this <laughs> on some TV show. But what if Pence and the chief of staff and the secretary of defense and the secretary of state think this is a very bad idea and they think it's being driven by an irrational president. They don't have to execute the order. They could simply trigger this provision. Now, it would have to be a dire circumstance because they know it's going to go over to the House and Senate for evaluation. I got to say, first of all, now you're writing your own TV scripts. <laughs> this is a pretty good one. So, uh, Dan, in response to what you said earlier, people think of the 25th Amendment as operating alone. But in fact, the way it would operate is in a kind of synergistic way with criminal prosecution, impeachment. Let's take another example. Suppose that a special counsel issues so many indictments around a particular president that it's very hard for him to discharge his powers and duties without appearing to obstruct justice. Now, in a political situation like that, you would expect something like what happened with Nixon, where people around him go and say, why don't you step down until you clear your name. If the president says no, their only recourse is not to say okay. They could say, we got nine signatures and we don't think you have any choice. Well, under the Nixon scenario, he would have been convicted in the Senate and removed. Well, that takes a long time. I mean, first of all, this is a procedure where the dates, the number of days are specified in the Constitution. It's over in 25 days. That's why, I mean, it is a procedure which has enormous potential influence in a tricky situation, and very few people have even read it or know that it exists. Did you watch the president give his State of the Union speech? I did. Did you think he was unable to perform the duties of his office? I think he's, he was performing them 
as he as he has been all along. I don't think he's fit to be president, but I think that's a different question from whether he's unable. So for those who think that President Trump should be removed from office and there are two avenues to do so until the next election, impeachment, 25th Amendment, which to you seems the more viable route to go? Well, I don't. Well, first of all, we have the House can now begin to proceed if they want. People have right. introduced that. This one, remember, starts with his own people. It starts with his own appointee. It may well be that Pence is keeping some distance because he knows he might have to do this. Secondly, there is no role in the Constitution for the chief of staff. It's not mentioned. But in fact, the chief of staff will play the key role. A third factor is the president could remove somebody who has visibly expressed distrust for him. So, for example, you could fire all those actings before they get around to signing the letter. Yeah. So one reason why actings can vote is because he can't deliberately leave things empty. So there's not enough to get nine. But, you know, Madison, Kelly and Killerson, when you put them all together, they, you know, I'm sure that if they put their heads together, they would say there are some decisions. Let's take a very clear example coming out of recent events. Suppose you had all the intel chiefs make a statement about who the real threat is. And Trump announces, I'm going to do something based on my own unformed belief. It's pretty much what happened last week, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, at a certain point, I think uh, the people closest to him are entitled to say, we think you're making irrational and destructive decisions. If you read, as I know you did, Bob Woodward's book, Fear, Gary Cohn is grabbing piece of papers off of his desk. For example, what if he suddenly says, I want to withdraw from NATO, and he takes a piece of paper and writes, I hereby withdraw from NATO. Or suppose he gets up tomorrow morning and he tweets out, I hereby withdraw from every treaty to which we're a party, including the UN Charter, the WTO. Are we stuck? Just imagine the different processes you've been describing. You know, the House says, well, we think that's a high crime and misdemeanor, so we start an impeachment proceeding, and you have to go through and take as long as it would take for Bill Clinton and others to be able to put forward evidence. But meanwhile, people who are interested in preserving the republic can go to the vice president and say, why don't you get the principal officers together and think whether you think that this guy is able to discharge the powers and duties of the office. That's what it's there for. I'm curious, um, the crafters of this amendment, some of whom are still alive, you mentioned Birch Bayh, who, by the way, his son, Evan Bayh, ran for president at least once. Did you talk to them yourself? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so – Yeah, Birch Bayh uh, blurbed our, our – <laughs> Oh, he did. He did. I'm not sure he would have anticipated a moment like this with the current president that we have. But uh, what was <laughs> – There it is. There it is, yeah. Did, Well-conceived did, reader's guide. To did Birch Bayh say anything at all about uh, whether this president's conduct in office rises to the level of the 25th Amendment? Well, you know, we started this project two years ago. And part of the thought was, look, when it starts getting into the zone where people are talking about whether it ought to be triggered, you're not going to have a rational discussion of this issue anymore. But we did think everybody wants a one-stop shop guide, right? right? I'd be delighted for someone to write a counter guide and say, point out to all the mistakes we've Well, made. have you sent it to any of the officers who can actually invoke the 25th Amendment no, but no, I you we'll know, know what to do if they think you know, I sent it to things people. have reached that point. Among the people who blurbed it are, you know, Ted Olson 
who right. was Solicitor General for Bush. Right. Neil Eggleston was White House counsel. A lot of people have read it and blurbed it. And Norm Ornstein, the presidential historians, Julian uh, Zelizer, right. you know, people understand how this works. I think that a lot of people could be looking to your guide and uh, no doubt you if we uh, get to that point. So, um, you know, this may have a long shelf life. Well, that's what it's there for. By the way, we're not being paid for this. It's, uh, it's free. <laughs> it's produced by the Yale. Free, free legal advice. It's produced by a uh, distinguished by, Yale law and, well, and professor. Maybe, yeah. And maybe you should send it to some Hollywood directors so that they get their facts right. <laughs> Well, let us hope for your sake that uh, your guide to the 25th Amendment is cited as many times as Charles Black impeachment <laughs> book has been because we read about it all the time. Harold Coe, thanks for coming on Skullduggery. Thank you. Thank you. Roger McNamee, welcome to Skullduggery. I am so excited to be here. <laughs> well, I really am. We're excited to have you. Congrats on the book, Zucked. Uh, I want to delve into a lot of really meaty material you've got in here. But I want to start out with the scene you describe early on in the book. I think you call it the strangest meeting yeah. ever yeah. in which Mark Zuckerberg comes to see you. Yeah. Tell us what happened there, why he came to see you, yeah. and what happened in the meeting. So I have to set the scene. Keep in mind, I've been investing in technology since 1982. That's before there was a personal computer industry. When I started, the biggest tech things in California were the space program and basically the electronic defense systems you put on airplanes. That's what people did in tech in 82. Then the PC industry happened. So by the time I meet Mark, it's 2006. I'm a senior statesman. And one of his colleagues calls me up and says, my boss has got a problem. And he needs to talk to somebody who's been around a long time who's not conflicted. Would you take a meeting with him? So the company's two years old. He's 22. <laughs> and I'm 50. And I'm thinking, wow, this is cool. And let me explain why. They only had 9 million revenues. But I had been following every social network before, and they'd all blown up, and they'd blown up for the same basic reason. They all allow people to be anonymous, and when you allow anonymity, all of the social stigmas of behaving badly go away, and so bullies take over and trolls take over. And generally speaking, once that happens, your network breaks down. So Mark, was this clear to you in 2006? Oh, yeah. That early? Well, keep okay. in mind, I've been doing this for a long time, and yeah. I've watched really three generations of social networking companies flame out over these issues. Right. And so I was really excited to meet him because Facebook in the early days had authenticated identity. You had to have a college email address. And even after that, you had to have an authenticated corporate email address. You couldn't just go in and say, I'm Michael Isikoff, right? You had to go in and actually be Michael Isikoff. <laughs> and the second thing they had was genuine privacy control. And I'm going, this is genius. He's going to be as big as Google is now. And I'm thinking, 100 million people are going to be on this thing. It's going to be gigantic. It's going to be awesome. So I'm really excited to meet him. He comes to my office. He's wearing, he's Mark. So he's got flip-flops. He's got the hoodie, courier bag. We sit in this really informal space. And we're no more than three feet apart. And I say, Mark, before you say anything, i got to give you context. Because once you start talking, you're just never going to believe anything I say. So I believe that if it hasn't already happened, either Microsoft or Yahoo is going to offer a billion dollars for Facebook. And everybody you know is going to tell you to take the money. 
And I said, look, I've been doing this a long time. Nobody has exactly the right idea at exactly the right, right time twice. No one. It's never happened. You can't count on it. If you believe in this idea, you got to do it because with all due respect to Yahoo and Microsoft, there's no way they're going to make this work properly. What ensues, and here's where you get to the part that you're worried about, I then just had this experience I've never seen before or since. For almost five minutes, Mark is pantomiming thinking gestures, right? Hand on chin, hand on forehead, looking up, looking up in a different direction. At the one-minute mark, I'm thinking, this is really weird. I mean, I'm <laughs> no, he's not saying anything. Not saying anything. Anything. Total silence. Total silence. And we're in this little room that's like a studio in that it's got padded walls. It's Because yeah. we have a giant video game system built in there. So we had padded walls to keep it quiet. So it's like ultra quiet. It's not saying anything. <laughs> and at one minute, I'm thinking, I just realized I've never been in a meeting where one-on-one somebody has sat there thinking about something for that long without saying anything. At two minutes, I'm getting really uncomfortable. At three minutes, my fingernails are starting to grate on the <laughs> furniture. At four minutes, I'm ready to scream. And... Finally, he relaxes, and he goes, you're not going to believe this, but everything you just said has just happened, and that's why I'm here. And so that began a three-year period where I was one of his mentors. Now, what had happened is Yahoo had Yahoo offered to buy dollars, Facebook. And his and parents... Had done so... I wonder what our we, stock portfolio yeah, would look like. Well, I mean... We have Roger to now, for... Right. Yeah. Well, I looked at Broadcast.com as the yeah. benchmark on that sort of thing. So I'm not sure Facebook would have been Facebook if it had been part of somebody else. I yeah. think you needed Zuck exactly where he Yeah, who would have okay. screwed it up is what you're saying. Well, right, I'm so, saying it yeah, would have been something, and it might have been interesting, yeah. but it wouldn't be what we have now. Okay, right. so I want you to sort of rewind and then and tell this story, tell your kind of evolution here, because in this book, you say, if you, you know, flash all the way forward, the greatest threat to the global order in my lifetime is represented by Facebook. So, represented by, but not limited to, right? Okay. So it's really internet platforms broadly. So think Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Google, uh, YouTube. But briefly tell Snap. us your story, how you, you became a mentor, yeah. so an what, advisor, what, so and I, an investor. In the early days of Facebook, you know, it's a tiny little company. And Mark's got Peter Thiel is his first investor who has very strong opinions, very, very smart man, but very different from me. <laughs> he's got <laughs> a big Trump guy, let's remind people. He's uh, got he's, Don Graham. The head of yeah, the right. Washington Post. Who we used yeah. to work for. Very yeah, right. different from Peter Thiel, different yes. from me also. He's got Mark Andreessen, the founder of Netscape, now the head of Andreessen Horowitz, a great venture capitalist today, and a person whose philosophies are more similar to Peter Thiel than to Libertarian. Me. Yeah. yeah. And so he's got all these people who help him on a lot of things. And so I'm coming in. My focus is very narrow. I'm helping him with personnel issues because, let's face it, his whole team wanted to sell the company to Yahoo. And he was going, well, wait a minute. They don't believe in the vision. Maybe I need different people. And so I help him on that. And then I help him. You remember the Winklevoss brothers? Yeah. The, oh, okay? yeah, yeah. So the twins? From the movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so that whole thing blows up and becomes a PR crisis. And I help him navigate that. And then – he decides he has to have a new number two. He's got to have somebody who can be his partner who wants to do the business side because he's got a big audience now and it's time to monetize. And the context here is that in 2000, I was helping the Grateful Dead 
with their digital business strategy because Jerry Garcia died. The band had this huge staff, and they were my favorite, and I wanted to take care of them. And, and <laughs> what a so, long, strange trip yeah. it's been. <laughs> Indeed. And so, so what happens yeah. is that I'm helping the dead basically take this software thing they have online called dead.net that was developed by one of their roadies. And I'm going to help them create a system that does direct-to-fan merchandising for all the bands out there who want to be part of it. And so they will all contribute. That way the dead won't have to pay the whole cost. Bono from U2 hears about this. And he's working at that time. It's 1999 and uh, very early 2000 on what's called the Millennium Debt Forgiveness Program. And his counterpart at the Treasury Department is the chief of staff to the Secretary of the Treasury, whose name was... Cheryl Sandberg. Cheryl Sandberg yeah. And he goes, Cheryl, I got to find this guy in California. How do I do that? And she goes, you're not even going to believe this. My brother-in-law works for him, which was true. She hadn't met me yet, but her brother-in-law worked for me. And so she connects Bono to me. In 2003, I leave the firm that I'm at, Silver Lake, and start a new firm called Elevation with Bono. We then get involved with Facebook. And Mark's asking the question, I got to have a number two. In between, I've introduced Sheryl Sandberg to John Dora Kleiner Perkins, which gets her the job at Google, where she becomes what she became. I mean, she did this amazing job, one of the most capable, brilliant people I've ever known. And she comes to me by pure coincidence and says, the Washington Post has offered me a really great job. I'm thinking of leaving Google. I go, Sheryl, hang on. Google's in the process of destroying the Washington Post. This is a terrible <laughs> idea. If you're going to leave Google, you got to go to Facebook. And she goes, wait a minute, he's 22 years old. This is never <laughs> going to work, or 23. And I go, it will work. His mom's a doctor. He's got nothing but sisters. I believe this is the rare Silicon Valley person who can work with women. It takes like a month and a half to get them did, to did you, but, but did you point out that he might be a little bit on the spectrum after your well, meeting no, in be, which he doesn't say anything for five clear, minutes? Everybody mm-hmm. who starts great technology companies is somewhere unusual, okay? <laughs> I'm somewhere unusual. It is, in order to create a great company, you have got to have exceptional levels of focus and exceptional levels of commitment, and you are not going to fit into your normal PTA meeting, okay? okay. You're just not. Right. So she'd been at Google, okay? Yeah. It's not like she was working with people that you're going to meet just in the bleachers in the ballpark, okay? Right. You're just not. And so she already knows that. She's that Coming out of Washington, that was clearly an issue. Yeah. But when she'd been at Google for five years or whatever it had been, nah, she was cool with that. And by the way, she already had a strong opinion of him, and it wasn't like she was going to dive into this. She was going to be cautious. I mean, he had. Because she's kind of like a type A, you know, high achiever in a a normal sort of. But also really, really organized, okay? And so she would have done all of her preparation. I think that's what the gap was going on while she was deciding whether to take the meeting. Anyway, they get together, they get along great, and they become a team. And so I have this really weird thing that my relationship with Sheryl Sandberg begins with her introducing me to a guy who becomes my business partner and then has me introducing her to the person who becomes her business partner. So at that point, with Cheryl on board, Mark's need for me as a mentor is greatly reduced because they're moving into an operational thing. That's not my great strength. And so I'm gradually fading, and I know it, and I tell Mark, I go, look, dude, we're gonna be, we can be friends, but you don't need me anymore. It's time to get people who are really good at this stuff. So I settled into the bleachers as chief cheerleader for this company. And what I don't realize is that between 
when I stopped in 2009 and 2011, things are more or less the way they've been. But from 2011 to 2014, they change a lot. That's when they figure it all out. That's when they figure out that, oh, yeah, that, uh, that like button and uh, the tagging on photos, those are really addictive. Those cause responses. And maybe we should do more of that. And, oh, yeah. Our targeting sucks because we're not using the data f that we collect outside on the web. So maybe we ought to get more data from the web and use that for targeting inside Facebook. I mean, it changes really dramatically, and I have no idea. So in early 2016, it's the New Hampshire primary. I'm on vacation. I'm watching Facebook. And all of a sudden, there's a string of anti-Hillary memes coming from groups that are claiming to be associated with Bernie Sanders. And they're the kind of thing that you can see going out from a campaign, but not with their name on it, right? And the next day, it I has said, individuals' names. No, on no, it no, or, no. Or, but or, it's like right. Bay Area for Bernie or something. Yeah, the campaign, right? Yeah. It, 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 no, it's not suggesting campaign, but it's a Facebook right. group that clearly says it's Bernie, right? right? So if you're if you're Bernie and you don't like these things, you're probably going to try to say, "Hey, mm -hmm. cut it out," right? Next day, there's like twice as many of these things. The day after that like twice as many again and more and more of my friends are in it and it's happening overnight so you're thinking bots I'm just, no I'm saying thinking. it's inauthentic but real people I know are in it which means somebody's spending money to draw them you know if you create a group and you want to attract people you put up a thing saying hey I've got a group that's pro Bernie you want to join right and the key thing was now who's going to spend money on a thing whose sole purpose is to send out deeply misogynistic Hillary memes I'm just, that seems weird. It's not like they're so talking about politics. So who do you think politics. it was? I had no idea. So I just make note. Then a month later, Facebook expels a group that was using the software that's for the advertisers to collect data on people who are interested in Black Lives Matter. And they're selling it to police departments. I mean, horrible violation of civil rights, right? Fourth Amendment. Now, they expelled them, but by then the damage is done, right? There's no way to undo that damage. And I'm going, whoa, that's evil. Then Brexit in June. Yeah. The Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom, they're deciding whether to leave the European Union or not. And the night before the election, the polling says Remain, the group that's going to stay in the EU, is going to win by four points. The next day you have the referendum, and it goes the other way by four points. And I'm thinking to myself, how did that happen? Did Facebook have an effect? Because Facebook was, the Leave campaign was using Facebook like crazy. And they were basically attributing everything wrong in the United Kingdom to immigrants. Right? Whether it was real or imagined, everything. It was just, it was like the Hillary stuff. Lots of really inflammatory messages. I'm wondering, is there something about Facebook that gives an advantage in a campaign to inflammatory messages? Because again, I'm not, I wasn't there when they create the thing. So I don't realize that, yes, indeed, there is. I'm just seeing it. And what is so, it? Yeah, what so, is it that enhances the inflammatory messages? So here's the way it works the algorithm, so Facebook's advertising business requires people to pay attention because the ads are mixed in with everything else. It's not like TV where everything stops and you have to watch an ad for 30 seconds. Here it's just right in the stream. People can skip right over it. How do you get their attention? The way you want to get people to spend a lot of time and see a lot of ads is you appeal to the parts of their emotional uh, spectrum that they can't resist, the lizard brain, right? The things that are part of your yeah. genetic things. The same, well, the same things that magicians appeal to, right? Magicians appeal to, you know, your sense of shock and awe, mm -hmm. right? And wonder. But, you know, they do all these tricks. The same things that slot machines do, right? The same things propaganda does. And that the ones that really work on social media are outrage and fear 
and then rewards, right? Rewards is the thing from casinos, right? So notification is a reward. A like is a reward, yeah. right? So they, they focus on those three things. And they're studying these techniques, you believe, by these psychological by, by uh, Between 2011 and 2014, I think they could have written PhD theses yeah. on a rate of like one right. a week, okay? I mean, they become the world's experts on this stuff. And keep in mind, it's not like that stuff was new to Facebook. What was new was that you suddenly had a real-time feedback loop. Television's been doing this forever, and before that, magazines. But now suddenly you can personalize it. Now you can give each user a Truman Show. Now I haven't figured any of this out yet, right? At this point, all I can see is there's this weird stuff going on. And then in August, we hear about Manafort and I'm going, hmm, that's weird. Yeah. Don't like the sound of that at all. And then in October, we hear that the uh, housing and urban development has penalized Facebook because its ad tools allow people to violate the Fair Housing Act by discriminating based on race, right? Because you can exclude people from ads. And so ads are being placed that, but, that excludes African-Americans? Precisely, or any group you want to exclude. Yeah. I mean, the Fair Housing Act covers a wide range, and you could basically violate it at a level of granularity. Who's placing the ads? Well, let's say an apartment owner. Yeah, right. And he's he's doing things on Facebook that he can't do in, in the newspaper. Correct. Right. right. And exactly. Say, yeah. And that's the point. The Whites only. This is right. exactly the point that you were just asking about a moment ago, which is at Facebook, you can get to a granularity of the individual. And you don't just get to the granularity of the individual because everybody's on there almost every day and because they're on there multiple times a day and because you're triggering their emotions, you know where their hot buttons are. OK. And so. I basically write a thing for Recode, which is a blog in Silicon Valley. Right. And I mean, I'm trying to get them to look into it, and they weren't that interested in looking into it. Trying to get Facebook to look into it. No, I'm trying to get Recode to look into it because I know. Kara Swisher. Right, exactly. Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg. Okay. So Walt asked me to write the the op ed, and uh, I start drafting the op ed, and right at the time that the housing and urban development thing comes out, I send it to to Mark and Cheryl on the 30th of October. Now, why do you send it to them? But basically because I've been their mentor. They're my friends. I'm not a journalist. I'm not trying to start an argument in public. I'm trying right. to solve a problem. Yeah. And keep in mind, I'm, I have no reason to believe it's going to affect the election at all. So I'm, the memo actually covers a really wide range of things. The memo's in the books. So you can read it. And right. it turns out that by just connecting these dots, I get really close to the core problem. I basically say that it's the business model and the algorithms together are allowing bad actors to hurt innocent people. And I give them the general case. They literally, both of them email back to me within an hour or two. And they're incredibly polite, but they're totally dismissive at the same time, right? It's yeah. like, Roger, this stuff is, it's isolated. And, you know. Well, your memo was, your paper here was pretty strong. You said recently well, it Facebook has done some things that are truly horrible and I can no longer excuse its behavior. Yeah. No, that's right. And, yeah. and, and in retrospect, I should have paused, rewritten the thing for them, right? Right. Because it wasn't, the tone wasn't right for that. But again, different people might have looked at the substance with a... Right. Higher degree of and and I read the memo and you're talking about privacy violations. Yeah, talk about how democracy. Yeah, Facebook using facial recognition software to identify people without their permission, and you talk about the trolls on both sides who have exploited this bug to spread untruths and inflame emotions. And at that point, I'm mostly focused on what's going on in the United Kingdom, right? Yeah. With Brexit. With Brexit, yeah. because it demonstrably must have happened there. And so 
the election happens, and the next morning, the book begins with what happens the next morning yes. when I talk to their <laughs> colleague, Dan Rose, and I leave the epithets out of that particular <laughs> sentence in well, the book. Well, you can share them on Skullduggery. I'm yeah. perfectly happy to just let you imagine that it was more colorful than I characterized it in the book. And the point was, I'm going, oh, my God, the Russians have tipped the election using Facebook. And you think it was decisive. Uh, well, hang on. At that point, yeah. I'm just going... What do I know? But the thing's decided by 78,000 votes in three three states. states. And we, at that point, don't know what had happened to the DCCC data. We know that the three Facebook employees embedded in the Trump campaign, right? There's a bunch of things we know and a lot of things we don't know. And I'm just going, and keep in mind, I'm really surprised by the outcome. I'm upset. You know, I'm not being fully measured in my vocabulary. Yeah. I spend the next three months trying to persuade Dan that Facebook's in the same situation that Johnson Johnson had been in in 1983 when somebody put poison in bottles of Tylenol, which is they're responsible for protecting the people who use their product, whether they put the poison in there or not. And Dan's going, no, 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 we're protected by the law. The law says there's this thing called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that says that internet platforms are not responsible for what third parties do on their platforms. It was originally put there to give them protection against copyright suits for posting music files and things like that. But they were hiding behind this thing. I'm going, dude, if people decide that you're responsible, it doesn't matter what the law says. You're a trust business. They're going to kill you. How did they not know that the Russians were placing these phony ads on their platform? Okay. They were paying for them in rubles, for so, Christ's sake. So, so right? the, the book is all about this. So imagine, as I, to everybody who's listened to this, I wrote this book from the perspective of the Jimmy Stewart character in Rear Window. Yeah, you know, at the beginning yeah, of this thing, right. I am completely naive. I have no idea what's going on. I see this stuff that looks like a series of crimes, and I pull on the thread to try to figure out what's going on. And I use the narrative arc of my discovery to teach you all the things that matter in this process, not because the whole thing has already happened. In fact, we're still in the early innings of the overall problem, but because this is such a severe problem that everybody needs to be able to participate in the conversation now. And what I do is give you the framework for thinking about problems like this to understand what's going to matter so you can look at new technology and realize what the potential issues are. So in this narrative thing, I spend three months trying to figure out what the heck happened. I meet this guy named Tristan Harris. He'd been at Google. And it happened my semi-annual time of being on Bloomberg Television as co-host is the day he's on there. He'd been on 60 Minutes, and they bring him in to interview. It just happened to be this day. So I get the transcript, and I'm reading it. He's describing this concept he calls brain hacking. And this is the idea that if you have enough data on somebody and you have a real-time feedback loop, you can create an artificial intelligence and when somebody comes onto Facebook or some other platform thinking they're going to look at pictures of babies and puppies, you can sit there and manipulate their attention in order to generate more revenue for yourself. The problem with that is that you create habits, like buttons and notifications get people coming back. They develop a habit. The habit can very easily evolve into an addiction. And when they're in an addicted state, they are vulnerable to manipulation. And with a product that is as widely used as Facebook or YouTube, that means you can move whole countries because you don't have to move them all. You just need to move enough at the margin to change outcomes. I read this transcript. I do the interview with the guy, and I call him up immediately afterwards and say, do you need a wingman? 
And he goes, what do you mean? I said, you understand how this relates to the election, right? And he goes, well, not really. Right? He had this whole – he. so we each had half the story. We put the two together and go, oh, my God. So we immediately go to the TED conference, and this guy here in New York by the name of Eli Pariser, who is a genius thinker, had been at TED, given one of the greatest TED Talks in history. He gets Tristan onto the docket on two weeks' notice. Normally, people spend six months just preparing. He gets him on with two weeks' notice. We go there, and it was like golf applause. I mean, just <laughs> you could barely hear it. I mean, they they were really nice, but nobody cared. I mean, the tech guys want to go back to making uh, their billions, right? We we could spend hours discussing this, but just to sort of wrap up here, yeah. what should be done with Facebook given all the flaws in okay, so the company that you've identified? So let me spend what's the the core thing to understand is it's not just Facebook; it's all of these platforms. So Facebook, Instagram, Google, uh, YouTube, mm-hmm. WhatsApp. Think of them like you would think about a chemical company that has caused oil spills or Superfund sites. We're at the point here where the country was in the 40s, where people would pour chrome into rivers, they would pour lead into rivers, we're dying. We have to make them pay the cost of the cleanup. There has to be the opportunity for litigation. There has to be the opportunity for states' attorneys general to go after them on these. They have to pay the cost. So because what you're – I think what you're saying is that these – platforms are not going to reform themselves. No, we know that. We've we spent know two that. years. Yeah. And so, but you say more than it's just about policymakers or, you know, government enforcement actions. The, it's also the users. The right? users have an opportunity to withdraw our attention, to redirect it elsewhere, to use other products, to do, organize groups, to send around photos. There are lots of ways we can do it. I no longer use Google. That was really hard because it's so inconvenient. And the question is, are you willing to bear a little more inconvenience in order to restore democracy, in order to help your mental health and that of your kids? And people are, have been deleting their Facebook apps. And we have to have regulations for what you can do with kids. Like we have to stop bombarding little kids with technology. We have to – I mean I think you want to move all the ages up the way you would, did with tobacco, right? There's a whole series of things – book describes them all. I hope everybody will read it and get involved in this Should conversation. Should these companies be broken up? Are they monopolies that, that need to be broken up? They are monopolies, and antitrust is a core part of this, but there is no one solution. We have to do all of them at once. Roger McNamee, thank you. The book is Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks to Harold Coe and Roger McNamee for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.